Well, once again, turn to Genesis chapter 18. We've already read a few verses there. Just to give you a little background while you're turning there, God has already appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Each time the Lord has promised that Abraham would have offspring, amongst several other promises. And in 17, that we looked at last week, he promises that his offspring would be specifically from Sarah. I will give you a son by her, the Lord says in verse 16 of chapter 17, and then reiterates it in verse 19. Not Ishmael, but no, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and that's the one with whom uh, I will establish my covenant. So the Lord repeats himself twice, saying that it will be Sarah indeed who bears a child. So there is no mistaking what's being communicated uh, here and in the previous chapters. Though Abraham laughed in chapter 17 at the Lord's words, we see that it didn't cause him to have a, a, a lack of faith because as soon as he receives this promise and is commanded by the Lord to bear the sign of the covenant, he follows through in faith, carefully doing what the Lord had commanded him to do. Now here in chapter, well, in chapter 17, it's noted that Abraham is 99 years old. In chapter 21, it's noted that he's 100 years old. So between chapter 17 and chapter 21, there's a lot that happens. And we get more detail uh, about uh, you know, what happens to Abraham in this year of his life than, than of any other years of his life. In fact, this 24-hour period that Genesis 18 deals with and on into 19 is the most detail of any day that we get of Abraham's life. So it must be very important and highlighted for a reason. So that gives you a nice little introduction and hopefully piques your interest. What's so important that we get so much detail? Let's read now, Genesis 18. And we've already read about the visitors. It's the Lord that comes to see Abraham to his tent. Let's pick up the reading at verse 9. After the three men and Abraham, uh, well, the three men have enjoyed a meal. Abraham has attended to their needs. And now we pick up the reading at verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. You'll see there that I've entitled this Laughter. Scrap that. We're going to deal with laughter later. Uh, had a little change of plan in the preparation. Uh, so I've entitled this, as you see on the outline I've given you, so David, you can note this when you put it on the internet. Uh, reluctant faith in a gracious God. Reluctant faith in a gracious God. And that's what we're going to see here today in Sarah. 
Well, as we said before, the beginning of chapter 18 finds Abraham sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he sees three travelers have approached and stand before him. So he runs out to meet them. Maybe he recognizes them. The Lord has appeared to him, obviously, in the past, as we've, we've uh, mentioned just a moment ago. He runs out to meet them, and he invites them to rest in the shade of the trees and offers them refreshment. You know, he understates it. You know, have a little water, wash your feet, and rest. But then he goes on, and he gives them uh, more than just simple refreshment. He mobilizes Sarah and his servants and puts on a feast for his guests. And it tells us that Abraham stands by, attending to their needs while they eat. Well, verse 1 has already indicated that Abraham is receiving a visit from the Lord. Verse 13 confirms it. And, you know, verse 10, it says it in the ESV that it's the Lord, and it uses the, the word for Yahweh. But it's only implied in the text. They're just making a good translation of it. But verse 1, verse 13 tell us that it's the Lord that, that uh, is visiting Abraham here. And as you read on down in, through chapter 19, uh, you find out, and the most natural understanding of what is written there, is that these three individuals are one, the Lord, and two angels. If you read chapter 19, or you see at the beginning of chapter 19, the Lord remains with Abraham and tells him what's about to happen to Sodom while the two angels go to Sodom. So Abraham receives a visit from the Lord. And it's really extraordinary, isn't it? God and a couple of angels shows up at his, his, at his tent and he provides a meal for them. The Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, hanging out at Abraham's tent. Well, it is amazing. But this begs an important question that I think will help us understand and apply this text to our lives today. The question is this, why this visit from the Lord in this manner at this point? That's more than one question, but really, why? Why is this happening? Well, if you do the math, like we mentioned before, chapter 17 through 21, uh, this can't be more than a few months after the Lord appeared to Abraham in chapter 17. Now, since God appeared to Abraham in chapter 17, and he repeated the promises to him that he already said to him in chapter 12 and chapter 15, and in very grand fashion, why in the world did God come again here in chapter 18? Such a brief time. Well, the answer lies in the text. Look at verse 9. The business the Lord came to discuss is only mentioned after the Lord asks a question. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now he's asking, where is Sarah? So she will be sure and pay attention to what he is about to say. The Lord wanted to make sure she was listening. Now, here's a very common experience that everyone has had. Say you're at a party. Or, or maybe you have a, a number of people at your house, and they're spread all throughout the house, and there's a number of conversations going on, and, and you're engaged in the conversation. You're paying attention to the, what the other person says until someone mentions your name. Maybe it's in the other room, or maybe it's in the... And you see, and, you're, and all of a sudden, you're not paying attention anymore to the conversation you're having. You're listening to what they're saying about you. You've had that experience before. Well, 
Sarah was in the tent next to Abraham. Abraham was with the Lord and the angels. And I can imagine that as soon as the Lord says, where is Sarah your wife? Well, her ears perked up. Now she probably was eavesdropping anyway. I mean, she was there in the tent next to them. Who were these strangers? Where were they from and where are they going and, and what are they all about? And then she hears, where's Sarah, your wife? She's in the tent, Abraham replies. And then the Lord says, knowing that she's listening, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Same promise he's made many times before to Abraham. Now this promise that Abraham had received and had repeated to him had never been personally given to Sarah. And so this particular visit would seem to be for Sarah's benefit. Now she's directly, obviously, involved in these promises to have a child. And so the Lord is showing up in person to, to deliver these promises to her that she's already delivered to Abraham. Well, in light of that understanding that this visit is for Sarah's sake, there are two aspects of it that I want to highlight for you this morning. The visit of the Lord and the promise that he makes on that visit. And what I really want you to see is what God is like in his relationship to humans. What God is like in his relationship to you and me. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the way he treats Sarah, uh, we can see the same thing for us, that he treats us in the same way. Well, first, the visit of the Lord. You'll notice that this appearance of the Lord for Sarah's sake is much different than how the Lord appears, uh, has, has appeared to Abraham in chapters 15 and 17. You know, in, in, in 15, there was the darkness and then God appearing as a flaming torch and smoking pot. And then in 17, he shows up and he says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. So it would seem here that this visit from the Lord is a gentler, less formal type of visit. He comes to Abraham and Sarah in the form of a man to a place where she lives and eats her food and tells her good news. The Lord cared enough to go out of his way, traveling all the way to the Oaks of Mamre, which sounds kind of like the town I'm from, off the beaten path, to personally deliver the news that Baron Sarah has waited all her life to hear. Well, my wife Sarah, my wife Sarah, not this Sarah, my wife Sarah was on the beach Friday, and the ice cream truck, you know, there's an ice cream truck that comes up and down the road there, uh, it was playing Christmas music, of all things. It's always playing something annoying. And you just pray that he doesn't stop where you are because he sits there for a while. But he was playing Christmas music, apparently. Uh, well, let's celebrate Christmas in July. You know, a lot of businesses will do that, have a sale. Christmas in July. We're about the furthest point away from Christmas that we can get in the calendar. What the Lord does here for Abraham's wife, Sarah, he has done for you. He has come to you in the form of a man to the earth, where you live, 
and he walked and he talked and he ate with people like you. He came and he shared some really good news. The good news that you've waited all your life to hear. Just like Sarah. Now we might think we would like for uh, God to appear to us with all the fireworks and, and wonders like he did with Abraham. Smoking pot, flaming torch, you know, that sort of thing. But he didn't. He appeared to us gently, personally, lovingly. Now when he returns again the second time, he'll come with all the fireworks and the firepower. You know, he'll be the rider on the white horse, conquering. And we look forward to that day. But today, let's think about the, the first visit Christ made to earth and how and why he came. Entering the brokenness of your life and the life of the world, coming as a servant to seek and to save that which was lost. Have you welcomed him into your life? This loving, gentle Savior? Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It's like he sat down and ate with Abraham. He, Abraham was called, the only person who was called in the Old Testament, a friend of God. He had a personal relationship with God. It was a covenant relationship, but a personal relationship with God. And this is the only time in the Old Testament that God actually eats a meal with the people. Other times, food has been offered to the Lord, but it's always turned into a sacrifice or consumed somehow. This is the only time the Lord is recorded to have to sit down and eaten, and he did this with Abraham. So that's the visit of the Lord. But I'll, I'll look at his promises. Look at verse 10. Now this is what the Lord wants Sarah to hear. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have his son. Now first we see the emphasis of the promise. Have you ever gotten joy from reading a grammar book? Probably not. Not many people do, unless you're an English teacher, maybe. I don't know. I know one of my children really does not like English, and he particularly dislikes grammar. Well, as I was studying this passage, uh, I got some great joy. My, my, my soul was thrilled from what I read in a grammar book. It's a Hebrew grammar book. But you see there in verse 10 where it's translated, I will surely return. The Hebrew literally, literally reads, I will return to return. And, you know, of course, you wouldn't translate it that way because that makes no sense. But it's a certain grammatical construct in Hebrew. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not telling you that to try to impress you because I've got a computer program that, that does all this for me. I don't have to think about it much. But the verb is repeated twice. I mean, you see it. It's in a different form. But it's repeated twice, so it says, I will return to return. And it's two different verb forms there. But I've given you what the, the Hebrew reference grammar says about it, talking about this particular type of verb construction. This construction usually intensifies the verbal idea. In this way, biblical Hebrew speakers and narrators express their conviction of the verity of their statements regarding an action. And this is the part I really loved. When a speaker has used this construction, 
a listener would not be able to, compl- to, to claim at a later date that the speakers had not expressed themselves clearly enough. So, God says, I will most certainly appear, return to you again. And I w- and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah couldn't say, wait now, I, I thought you meant, or uh, I didn't quite understand what you, or I thought something else. No. You, this is spoken in such a way that you could not mistake what was being said. Can you imagine uh, Sarah there? I mean, she's, she's, uh, you know, she's made the preparations. They're out there eating, and, and she hears her name. And then she hears this promise stated in the most emphatic way. Most certainly, without a doubt, you cannot mistake what I'm saying at all. If we went to court, you would have no leg to stand on to say that I didn't quite get your drift, Lord. God is saying to her in the most emphatic way, I'm going to return to you and you're going to have a son. Well, if that wasn't enough, I mean, she kind of laughs and says in her mind and says, you know, I, that's, that's impossible. And he says it again. Verse 14, he repeats the promise same way, though he doesn't use the verbal construct that time. So it's an emphatic promise. It cannot be missed. Now, secondly, we see the, the monergism of the promise. You know what? That word monergism is one that's only used by theologians. Nobody actually uses that. But it's a play off the word of synergism. You know what synergism is. It's when the, uh, the sum is greater than the parts. Two plus two equals five. It's kind of like the Costa Rican soccer team. You know, they played yesterday, and nobody knows any of their players. But they, they almost made it to the semifinals of the World Cup. Little tiny nation. But when you, you had all these no-name players, but when they played together, especially on defense, it, it was a thing of beauty if you're a soccer fan, which probably nobody here is except a few of you. You know, the sum of their parts uh, was greater than the whole. And that's synergism. They cooperated together to make something even greater than they could just adding themselves together. Well, we don't have synergism in this promise. We have monergism. The statement, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, does not imply cooperation with God for the promise to come to fruition. No, it's not a cooperation between Abraham and Sarah to make the promise come to fruition. The promise does not speak of cooperation between Abraham, Sarah, and the Lord for the promises to come to fruition. No, the Lord says, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The catalyst for the birth of Isaac is none other than the Lord and nothing in addition to the Lord. He makes it happen. He is alone the one who causes it to come to fruition. And he says it twice as I noted before. Well, this is inconceivable to Sarah because as she says in verse 11, she and Abraham were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, it tells us there. And what she's saying is, you know, I've got to be able to do something 
for this to happen, to have a baby, but I am physically unable to have children. I have always been barren, even when I was of the age of childbearing, and now I am not only barren, but I'm beyond the age of childbearing. This promise cannot be true unless I have the ability to contribute to it. She's thinking synergistically. She's thinking that she has to cooperate with the promise for it to come to fruition. I've got to do something. But the Lord is saying, I am going to make it happen. I am not only promising that it will happen, I am going to be the one who makes it happen. Sarah, you are about to receive a child that you are unable to produce. That's what the Lord is saying to her. And she found that very hard to believe. Now just as we saw with the first point, the visit of the Lord, that it is the character of the Lord to come to you as a man where you live like he did with Sarah. So also we see with the second point. Christ comes to you with an emphatic gospel promise of salvation, which is monergistic in nature. He promises to pardon your sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness and bring you into a relationship with himself. How can it be? You're a sinner. You're incapable. You've blown it. You can't make yourself acceptable to the Lord anymore. It's already over. God's holy and perfect, and you are imperfect. You sin, and you don't even realize you're sinning sometimes. These promises of Christ speak of a free salvation, and therefore they cannot be true, can they? They are true. Not only does Jesus promise to pardon and cleanse you and me and bring us into relationship with himself, he makes it happen. And he doesn't need your cooperation to do so. He, through his sacrifice on the cross, makes the impossible happen. Well, Sarah has something going for her. Not my wife, Sarah. Abraham's wife, Sarah. Well, my wife has a lot going for her. I don't want to get her mad at me. But the biblical Sarah, that's even worse, implying that she's unbiblical. Now, Sarah, the woman in the story we're reading, she had something going for her. She knew without a shadow of a doubt that she was incapable of having children. She had always been barren. She was past the age of fertility. And she knew that Abraham was past the age of fertility. That's three strikes right there. Barrenness and two people who, who can't have children. Well, the problem with you and me uh, that we don't have, uh, we don't have like Sarah, is that we don't think we are incapable of fulfilling the promises. We, we don't, well, you and I think we can earn God's favor and acceptance by acting right. God will accept me because I've tried really hard to please him. I'm more righteous than most people. Uh, at least I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And I've seen it time and time again. People say, you know, when I, when I get to the heavenly gates and, and I hope St. Peter will let me in because I've been a pretty good person. My goods outweigh my bads. 
Well, if you think this, if you think this way, then you're like a barren postmenopausal woman who thinks she is going to somehow produce a child. It's impossible. You cannot generate on your own acceptance with God. It's impossible for you to earn God's favor with your so-called righteous life. You have to come to that place where Sarah was, where she sees that I've got nothing. I've got nothing. The good news that Jesus brings is that he will pardon you, not based on what you have done, but on what he has done. He makes it happen. But we don't like to hear that, and we don't like to believe it because it hurts our pride. We don't like to come to that place where we are emptied of self-sufficiency. Archibald Alexander said, To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. To come to that place where you realize salvation is all of free grace, that you're forgiven of your sins, not because of anything you've done or not because you've earned it or you deserve it, but simply out of God's sheer grace in Christ. That's very hard to believe. Just like Sarah, finding it very hard to believe that, it, that she could have a child when she knew that she could not have a child. You've got to get to that place where Sarah was, where she acknowledged that she had absolutely nothing to contribute. Look at verse 12. She says, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That word worn out means, well, it means worn out, but uh, it, it has the sense of being useless, obsolete. You just need to throw it away. See, she recognized she had nothing. And the word pleasure is, she says, uh, shall I have pleasure? And that word pleasure is the word Eden, like the Garden of Eden. That's the word for pleasure. That's what the, the word Eden means, paradise. You know, after I'm old and worn out and useless and I have nothing to contribute, well then I enjoy paradise? Because to her... Having a child would be paradise. You know, it was very important in that culture to have children. And that, that meant you were a legitimate person, a legitimate contributor to society to have children. And she was a beautiful woman, the Bible tells us. Now, in our culture, uh, being a beautiful woman would be all that you really want. I mean, that's, that's what the, our culture values, is physical beauty. But in that culture, the way we feel about physical beauty was the way they felt about bearing children, particularly sons. It was absolutely important. And people drove themselves crazy if they couldn't do it, just like people drive themselves crazy if they don't feel like they're beautiful enough, women in particular. She, she sees these promises are just like paradise. And of course, that's exactly what the Lord is promising for us here today. Paradise, Eden, to return to, to do that which was lost in Eden. We lost paradise. Adam and Eve fellowshiped with the Lord. They, they were with him as he walked in the cool of the garden. But they sinned and rebelled against him and were banished from the garden. And now the Lord says, I can wash you, I can cleanse you, I can bring you back into relationship with myself, just like it was in paradise, in Eden. 
Is the Lord able to do this? Us broken, useless, worthless sinners? Absolutely, he says. The Lord does receive worn-out, useless sinners like you and me and Sarah. He cleanses us in Christ, washes us, pardons us, clothes us in the robe of Christ's righteousness. And as the Lord says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The Hebrew is anything too wonderful for the Lord. Is anything too miraculous for the Lord? That's what, it, that's what God's saying here. It's not. It's true. We embrace it by faith, by coming to Him and saying, Lord, I am worn out. I'm broken. Please, please save me. And He will. He will. Anyone who comes to Him, He will not cast out. All it, all it requires is a reaching out to the Lord, trusting Him in faith. Let's pray together.